0: We'd been on the road since early morning, and the day appeared endless. The flat countryside of central Yugoslavia stretched away for miles in all directions, and a shimmering heat hung over the fields. I was just beginning to dream about a good Irish rainstorm when Fred, our driver, pulled us into a roadside café. As we sat around sipping cold drinks, I thought about the differences between travelling alone and with other people. Certainly our 12 nationality, 40-strong party, had not clicked as a group yet so there was little talk. Thirst and travel fatigue were, up till now, the only real common denominators. I'd hardly noticed the car that had pulled in until the driver began blowing the horn and revving up at an awful rate. Turning around, I watched as Dave, a Welsh fellow traveller, walked towards the car. Apparently to apologise as a jam container he had thrown over his shoulder had passed through the open car window. Before any of us knew what was happening, three of the local paramilitary militia, emerged from the car. Dave fell to a blow from one of them and they proceeded to kick him on the ground. At this point a German passenger named Wolfgang emerged from the bus. He was huge, in the region of six foot five. But as he advanced on the militia men, they saw him and leaving Dave proceeded to attack Wolfgang in turn. I knew myself that these militia heavies were the nearest thing to police in the area and I shouted at Wolfgang not to resist, or we would all be in the soup. The situation was saved when the cafe owner ran out, screaming abuse at the militiamen. Amazingly enough, they desisted and piled into their car and sped down the road, leaving a choking cloud of dust in their wake. As we quickly boarded the bus, an American turned to me and demonstrated his nation's never-ending ability to derive positive benefits from even the most perilous of situations. He said... Gee, that's something you can tell your grandchildren. Sometimes the merits of long-distance travel can appear far removed from reality, as in the Yugoslavian incident. But the urge to see how people live in other countries has always been, for me, a strong one. Consequently, by the time I returned from my around-the-world bicycle trip in May 77, I was already making plans for a second trip that would this time incorporate a tour of Australia on a motorbike. February 78 saw the preparations begin in earnest. Visas and sponsors were what I needed, and the latter necessitated many miles being covered in and around Dublin over the summer months. As luck would have it, the sponsors were not too hard to find. Dunlop, Levi's, Kawasaki, Jury's Hotel and the Health Education Bureau all pitched in. CIE were very helpful and provided me with many contacts in Australia's major cities. Sponsors like these are absolute gods' ends, actually, it's Ireland herself that I really try to promote while I'm on the road, in the various corners of the globe, that I've been lucky enough to visit. My departure from Dublin was set for August the 5th, and as the day approached it occurred to me that my passport would be unable to take any more stamps. Sure enough, every page was absolutely crammed, so it was necessary to have a second passport clipped on. When I finally left Dublin, it was the August bank holiday weekend. It amused me to think of the thousands of Irish drivers who would spend their weekend fuming in traffic jams and there was me heading off for parts of the world where cars were virtually unknown. My visas were waiting in London and it was there on the morning of Wednesday the 9th that I boarded the bus for the 35-day trip to Kathmandu in Nepal. My suitcase was enormous and carried a load of stuff to sell in Asia. Fred, our driver, nicknamed it the Hilton. On the first day, we crossed from Dover to Calais, and driving into Belgium, spent the night in Ghent. Day two saw us rapidly covering the miles through Belgium, Holland, and into Germany. In Heidelberg, we met a coachload of Irish tourists. Our bus now began heading south along the Rhine Valley and in the general direction of the Austrian border. My fellow passengers were now beginning to talk with one another, and one or two small groups began to form. Margaret Sorolla an American led a 5 a.m. jogging party, which quickly became popular. Being a travel agent herself, she probably had a good idea of what five weeks' travel in a bus could do to the muscles of an average mortal. And there was Basil Lazinski, an Australian who began to give daily reports on his bowel movements, or his stools, as he preferred to call them. Our driver in general guiding light, Fred, turned out to be quite a character. If you see something that you want to take a photo of, just tell me and we will stop when we see it again. With Austria left in our fume-filled wake, we arrived at the Yugoslav border on August the 12th. Every time an American passport was produced, the border guards would smile and say, Jimmy Carter. I reckon some of the responses they got to this outstanding display of knowledge are unrepeatable. We spent that night in a pretty terrible youth hostel in Zagreb. Setting out at 7 the next morning, we drove south to Skopje, stopping on the way at the cafe where we had our ill-fated encounter with the militia men. As the last clouds of dust from their car settled in the distance, I sincerely hoped that the journey ahead would provide better stories with which to enthrall my future grandchildren. Skopje was where we picked up our last passenger, Niels Lauston Thompson, a Dane. South of Skopje, the road to the Greek border runs along some of the sheerest drops in Europe. Two years previously, I had cycled along these same treacherous roads, and even now I could clearly remember many of the twists, turns and landmarks. Entering Greece on the 14th was a relief because, to be quite honest, my feelings for Yugoslavia had been far from sympathetic. Pushing on through Greece we stopped in Thessalonica and Kefala on the coast, after which the route followed was the trail of Alexander the Great. Late in the morning of the 15th we crossed into Turkey and by early afternoon we pulled to a halt in Istanbul, the gateway to Asia. Istanbul was chaotic as always. The Americans and Aussies aboard had never seen anything like the place. As soon as we got out of the bus, we were mobbed by hordes of con men offering homemade coins for foreign currencies. I received at least a dozen offers to buy my shoes, and so, taking advantage of the situation, I opened my bulging suitcase and proceeded to sell off old clothes to an eager army of would-be purchasers. We spent two days in Istanbul, which must be one of the most incredible cities on earth. Some of us were quite content in just touring around and seeing sights like the light and sound show in the Blue Mosque, while others, for instance Vicky, an Australian, favoured more earthly pursuits, like having a brief but passionate affair with one of the local he-men. She reappeared literally minutes before we set out for Ankara. After staying one night in Ankara, the Turkish capital, we set out for Sivas, which is roughly halfway between Ankara and the Iranian border. The roads in north-central Turkey are pretty terrible, and as we bumped our way along things became noticeably quieter on the bus. It took a really good joke to get even the minimum of laughs. By mid-afternoon we arrived in Sivas. It had been slow going and everyone felt pretty worn out. However the weary feelings didn't last long. Sivas was crawling with the troops, armed to the teeth. As we soon found out there had been serious rioting and literally minutes before we arrived four people had been shot dead. I believe that incident made the front pages over here. Well anyway, the situation was very tense and I don't think that any of us got any more than five minutes sleep that night. After my cycle trip two years ago, I remember saying that Turkey was the country that I most wanted to see again. It's incredible how things can change so much in so short a time. The first time I was there, being Irish was synonymous with Don Givens, who was a national hero in football-mad Turkey even though it was his goals that had put them out of the nation's cup. But this time, even football had taken second place to one's politics and Muslim religious sect. There were few regrets when we left Sivas behind. was our last overnight stop in Turkey, and it was here that I experienced two hours of literal panic. I'd lost my passport. After frantic searching in the hotel, it finally turned up in the bus. I felt I aged about ten years in the time that I was looking for it. Many assorted prayers went skyward during and after that incident. Back on the road, and it was a familiar story again. Everybody was snoozing, or at least trying to, as the bus rattled over terrain that could almost be described as lunar. Mount Ararat was just looming over the horizon when my dreams were suddenly shattered by a shower of flying glass. Someone close to the road had thrown a stone at us and shattered a rear window. Fred went berserk, but as it turned out, it was the damage to the bus that concerned him most of all. This confirmed some of our earlier suspicions with rega- regard to his priorities. Luckily enough, no one was seriously hurt. In northeast Turkey, the local villagers are notorious for trying to rip off foreigners, One trick they tried to pull on us several times was to throw chicken blood at the bus as we passed through a village. In the next village, they would stop the bus and frantically claim that we had knocked down a child, claiming financial compensation for the imaginary child's family. It was a sight to see their expressions unchanging, even when it had become quite obvious that we knew full well what they were up to. Approaching the Iranian border, our progress improved considerably as we took a military road. At times we were as close as half a mile from the Russian border. The countries that our bus passed through on the way to Nepal were all enormous when compared to Ireland, but always there was the Russian border to the north. The mind really boggles at the thought of it. On the 21st of August, we reached the border between Turkey and Iran. It has been known to take up to ten days to cross into Iran, but as luck would have it, one of the border guards took a fancy to the ever-ready Vicky. The crossing took us only three hours. The same border guard turned up in Tabriz that night, and was somewhat annoyed by her sudden loss of interest. Out of the frying pan and into the fire would be the best way to describe leaving Turkey and entering Iran. Although Iran hadn't quite exploded onto the world scene when I was there, but you could certainly feel the bad vibes in the air already. Once again, I was able to compare the atmosphere with my visit two years before. The first physical indication of change was when I tried to sell some gear from the Hilton, in a Tabriz street. The police came charging in to disperse the crowd gathered around me. They thought it was a political gathering. Ramadan, the 30-day Muslim annual holy period, was on at that time in Tabriz. Nothing much happened during the day, as just about everyone was fasting and praying. But that night there was a riot. It began on the stroke of midnight and lasted until dawn. We spent the night under our beds as outside there were the continuous and unmistakable sounds of anarchy. Shooting, breaking glass, shouts, screams and the never-ending police and ambulance sirens. The next morning we went out to see how everything looked. Tabriz was in one hell of a mess but everybody had gone back to fasting and praying. We didn't stay another night. There was another aspect of this tour that was really becoming quite apparent and that was the fact that I'd always seemed to be glad to see the last of so many places. The tour company brochure had not mentioned anything like riots and revolutions. There were of course many lighter moments as when one of the girls, Sue, pulled back a window curtain on the bus and revealing the never-ending desert landscape commented, Would you believe it, but it's that same old movie again.
1: Do much on roads when you're crossing streets. As you can see, the motorists have no thought at all for pedestrians. They just happen to be there in the way.
0: I arrived in Tehran in the evening of the 22nd of August, and it was immediately apparent that this was no place for the daydreaming sort. For starters, the traffic was chaotic, and drivers seemed to treat pedestrians as fair game. Troops and police were very much in evidence, and I was stopped in the street by a policeman for wearing short trousers. That was a source of some amusement initially, but the next day as I strolled through the old part of the city, my shorts attracted attention that was far from funny. There I was, minding my own business, as the saying goes, when there was a sharp pain on my left hip. It happened again and I realised with horror that I was being stoned by local people because of my shorts and it being Ramadan and all that. I'd heard about things like this happening before and knew how to react. All you can do is walk on slowly as if nothing is happening. If you show any sign of panic whatsoever, the crowd will go wild and then the trouble really begins. I wasn't the only one with an experience like this. One of the Australian girls went through the same ordeal, although she was lucky inasmuch as as they threw peaches at her. The joke afterwards was that she was impeached, which just goes to show how low our level of humour had dropped. Counting my numerous bruises as we drove out of Tehran, I wondered if things could get any worse in this troubled country. No comment necessary there. With Tehran, thankfully, behind us, we drove northeastwards into the mountains. The climate was considerably cooler and it was here that many wealthy Iranians had come to live. The hills were dotted with large villas and all paid for by Iran's huge oil industry. Oil remained very much in our minds that day. After taking a plunge in the Caspian Sea, we all emerged coated with it and so discovered one of the not-so-pleasant side effects of economic progress. Mashhad was our last stop in Iran and we arrived there in the afternoon of the 25th of August. It was a case of no room at the inn, as the town was packed for a religious festival, and so we bedded down in what turned out to be a very good campsite. I had visited Mashad on my world cycle tour two years previously, and I noticed that there had been a lot of houses built in the city centre since then. However, upon further investigation, I discovered that many of these ostensibly comfortable dwellings had no interiors, and were, in effect, Hollywood-style sets, all for show. In retrospect, it hardly surprises me that the Shah's regime didn't last. The next day we approached the border with Afghanistan with some trepidation. This was bandit country, and anyone was fair game. In fact, the exact border between Iran and Afghanistan had only recently been agreed upon. Many people had been killed in border disputes, and taking full advantage of the confusion, the gangs of bandits had been operating freely in a kind of no-man's land. Even now, the border guards had to be changed every two weeks because they were so open to bribes. Nobody can travel through Iran without being affected in some way by the terrible extremes prevailing there. It is a country torn between East and West, the old and the new, a country where you can be stoned in the streets for wearing short trousers, or arrested for taking photos of petrol stations, which are considered strategic installations in a defence network that at least until the fall of the Shah was one of the most formidable in the world. Crossing from Iran into Afghanistan is like going through a time zone. We spent our first night in Herat, where there had been several traditional weddings that day. The singing that went on until dawn sounded like a group of demented alley cats, and needless to say, none of us got a wink of sleep. The next day, while travelling through the desert areas of Afghanistan, I was startled out of my semi-sleep when our bus pulled up to a sudden halt. There on the road in front of us was another bus, from the same company, on its way back to London it were the driver and a courier named Graham, who came over to us for the remainder of the journey. Although, looking back on it now, I think he wasted his time. He had been sick for about two weeks before he joined our tour, and it seemed a pity that he ever did bother joining us, because Fred kept on doing the uh, courier work. A meeting like that is always strange, and somewhat unexpected when you're literally in the middle of nowhere. Kandahar was our next stop, and we arrived in this old town on the 27th. Leaving the bus, we split into small groups and toured the market quarter. Sue, the teacher from England, and myself were ushered into a tea room by a very eager local man. I was sure that he was some sort of shady dealer and was ready to refuse any black market goods that he may try to pass on to us. As it happened, he was more interested in buying than selling, and the object of his desires turned out to be none other than the luckless Sue. He offered me quite a tidy sum if I would sell Sue to him as a prospective wife. Now you know what I mean when I compare a trip into Afghanistan as a journey back into time. Sue was to be the target of attention yet again, but this time in a very different way. Some kids hit her on the head with a watermelon. Yet again, as in Tehran, the only thing to do was to turn the other cheek. It just isn't advisable to get the locals all worked up in this part of the world. Afghanistan was in turmoil while we were there. At this stage we had come to expect little less, although that does nothing to calm already overworked nervous systems. The road from Kandahar to Kabul, the capital, was full of military traffic, and in particular Russian-made tanks. Apparently the new Marxist rulers of Afghanistan were expecting trouble after Ramadan, and judging by what we saw along the road, they were taking no chances. Needless to say, our cameras remained discreetly out of sight. When on a bus tour like this one, We must remember that it's stupid to get in any way involved in the internal affairs of the country that you happen to be passing through. It has to be like going to the movies, here today, gone tomorrow. Approaching Kabul we had to pull up at a roadblock. Because of the coup the very lowest soldiers had been promoted and it looked to us as if they couldn't use their new Russian rifles. That was of some comfort to us. They certainly were unable to read and looked at most of our passports upside down while spitting all over the place. We just smiled politely. On our first night in Kabul, 32 out of our 40 strong party came down with food poisoning, and that put a dampener on everything. Most of the next day we spent recuperating. That evening saw us all rushing to the hotel balconies at the sound of rioting in the street outside. There were hundreds of people rushing around, and the army attacked any unfortunate they could lay their hands on. It certainly looked like a politically motivated demonstration if the ugly scenes before our eyes were anything to go by, and we cracked up all the more when we were informed that such scenes were quite normal when this particular local movie star was in town. Sometimes I wonder how sleep was ever possible on that 35-day coach journey. At exactly 5am on the morning after the movie star riot, we were jolted from our slumbers by the unmistakable sound of bands playing and thousands of marching feet. Sure enough, our sleep sodden eyes were greeted by the sight of a huge red bannered pro-government march through the streets of Kabul. Rank after rank of schoolchildren in red uniforms trooped past the hotel, bearing witness to the fact that post-revolutionary Afghanistan was no place for slackers or those who were inclined to lie in after the crack of dawn. Much later, but still at morning, we drove out of Kabul through the spectacular Kabul Gorge and on into the legendary Khyber Pass. The pass is a little disappointing but it does boast the great engineering feat of possessing over 80 railway tunnels. In this area, the Hill tribesmen are a pretty nasty bunch of customers, if they want to be, and they make a living from manufacturing every conceivable type of gun. In particular, they will sell you a gun that looks, to the layman, like any old fountain pen. This pen gun is in fact a very formidable weapon. Crossing the Pakistani border after the usual three-hour delay, we arrived in Peshawar. The humidity and heat was phenomenal but oddly enough, affected the Americans and Australians aboard much more than it did the Europeans. I don't think any of us were at all surprised to learn that the political climate in Pakistan was not too healthy at the time of our arrival. Peshawar itself was under martial law, and so we heeded local advice not to venture out after dark. Our on to Lahore, where we spent two welcome days of genuine relaxation. It was here that I managed to sell the last of the gear I had brought along for that purpose in the market. The money that I had collected along the way from selling everything from woolen socks, guaranteed Irish of course, to an electric hairdryer was to compose a major part of my airfares from Kathmandu to Perth, Western Australia. Our entry into India was certainly the smoothest so far. It was slow but relaxed and everything was handled with perfect decorum by an official sitting behind a small table, sipping tea. Amritsar was our first stop, and it wasn't long before we relished the unique atmosphere of India, a tour of the great Golden Temple. This is the centre of the Sikh religion, and with spectacular viewing, to say the least. In stark contrast was the farm owned by our hotel manager. He was polite, but insistent, and we had to undergo a long lecture on the ups and downs of rice growing. One cause for considerable celebration was the availability of beer once again, now that we had left the Muslim countries behind. If there is one thing that will always remind me of India, and that is the way the authorities continually tried to create new forms of employment. In Amritsar, I saw how many people were involved in collecting mud for making bricks, and many more in making them. The finished product was then passed on to another group of workers, who proceeded to smash the bricks to pieces. The fragments were now used in road construction. A local road lane scheme would in its turn employ hundreds of people, women included, without a machine of any description in sight. Still, everyone was happy. Leaving Amritsar, we made tracks for the Indian capital of New Delhi. At this stage we had just a vague picture of the weather situation ahead, and in particular the whereabouts of the seasonal monsoon rains. Little did we know that we would soon witness the beginnings of the worst floods in India's recent history. Our first hint of trouble came when the bus was stopped by the local police and diverted off the main road, which apparently was underwater a couple of miles further on. This in fact turned out lucky for us, as we drove through parts of the country well away from the normal tourist trails. I'll never forget the reactions of the villagers as our brightly coloured modern coach rushed along the narrow winding roads. The fact that it was full of white people attracted particular attention, especially among the younger children who would chase after the bus from one end of the village to the next. I felt not unlike a visitor from a distant planet. We eventually arrived in New Delhi and booked into our hotel hotel room, which was very modern by normal Indian standards. Everyone was exhausted and we just commandeered every seat in sight. I was talking with one of the New Zealanders in our party, Brian Main, and he ordered a glass of milk. On receiving the milk and the bill, Brian threw a fit and called after the waiter. Holy cow, is the milk sacred here too? That crack wasn't appreciated by the management, but made the milk at about 50p a glass, somewhat sweeter to taste. I always laugh when I think of how the floor boys in that hotel tried every trick in the book to get tips off us. The boy on our floor was particularly funny. The night before we left, he came round to everyone, saying that the next day was his day off and how we should tip him in advance, despite his pending absence. In fact, he did quite well, as his expression of supreme innocence was very winning. Large areas of the city were under water by now, as we discovered when we set out to visit the zoo. It too was flooded and closed, which was a pity, as it only cost the equivalent of a 2p admittance. Delhi is a tremendous city, but for a European it is very difficult to get a minute's peace. Sitting in a park on the second day there, I was continually besieged by ice cream and soft drink sellers, taxi men and the inevitable snake charmers. I can remember getting up to walk away, only to be pursued all the way back to the hotel by a charmer, waving this obviously distressed and fangless creature in the air. So much for the magic and mystery of the East. One thing that the great Indian subcontinent does not shroud in mystery, and that is the awful weather conditions it can unleash on its unfortunate people. The night before leaving Delhi, there was the most fantastic storm I had ever experienced. You had to shout to be heard above the noise made by the rain. The ever-worsening floods were a worry to us all as we left New Delhi, the morning after the storm, and set out for Agra. Most of us were concerned about what our relatives and friends might be thinking. After all, we had passed through countries undergoing violent political upheavals, and now we were in the middle of a natural disaster of potentially lethal proportions. Taking to the back roads yet again, we arrived in Agra at about midday on the 7th of September.
1: Quite a well laid out city. We're in the containment area. If um, you just watch as we go down here, um, we'll turn right and down on your left is quite a good market area. Now, providing the flooding is kind to us, tomorrow we'll leave at... Uh, like
0: oh. Agra is the site of the Taj Mahal, and we just about managed a tour of the building and grounds before the rising waters of the river Jumna put an end to everything. What was happening to the Jamna would also be happening to the Ganges. In order to get to our next stop, Varanasi, or Benares as it's also known, and in fact our ultimate destination, Kathmandu, we had to cross the Ganges. So we embarked on a race against time and the rising floodwaters. Along the road we were stopped by a lorry driver who told us that the bridge at Alabad was underwater. Driver Fred and courier Graham went into a huddled conversation, after which Graham turned to us and asked if anyone had a road map of India. This brought a few laughs and helped lessen the mounting strain on everybody. Anyway, a map was produced and we reverted to what in polite terms would be called secondary routes once again. After a total of ten hours continuous driving, we emerged from one of these insignificant roads onto a magnificent new steel bridge over some very troubled waters. Looking down as we crossed that bridge, our eyes met an horrific sight. Human corpses and the carcasses of sacred cows were being carried downstream in the swirling waters. I will never forget that awful scene. It was nightfall when our bus finally drove into Varnasi.
1: Well, here we are at the outskirts of Benares. I'm sure you'll all be glad to see it. Benares is the most sacred city in the Hindu religion in India. And it's also the greatest place for the worship of Shiva, the uh, the destroyer and reproducer. So what we've done, just done a 16 hour drive. Very good, thank you Fred.
0: This ancient city is sacred to Hindus and is presided over by their god Siva, the destroyer, who along with Brahma, the father, and Vishnu, the preserver, make up the universal soul, accounting for the creation, preservation and destruction of the universe. The dominance of Siva at this time was not lost on even the most fervent Christians among us. After a long sleep in our hotel, we set out to view the state of the river next morning. As it happened, it was unnecessary to go down to the river. It came to us. Again, it was the sight of dead bodies and cows that hit our eyes. In addition, there were the half-cremated bodies of dead Hindus. The raging floods had little respect for the long cremation and funeral rites of Hindu pilgrims. The entire scene had an eerie atmosphere of death about it, and overhead the vultures flew in long, patient circles. It was bad here in Benares, But I hated to think what it looked like downriver in Calcutta as the Ganges spewed its grisly cargo into the Bay of Bengal. It certainly was a relief when Fred drove us out of Benares. We made quick progress in the northward journey to Nepal. As you draw near to the Indo-Nepalese border, the Himalayas rise like a huge wall. It's an incredible sight. The border crossing was smooth, and one of the most beautiful countries on earth lay before us. The Nepalese people too are extremely friendly, though much thinner on the ground than their Indian neighbours. Driving along the new Chinese-built highway, we arrived in a town called Pakara. This place was one of those untouched gems that are becoming increasingly rare in today's world. In fact, Nepal was my favourite country of the entire trip. The mammoth journey was nearly over now, and the next day, which was the 11th of September, we drove up to Kathmandu. The Nepalese capital.
1: Okay, that's Kathmandu down ahead of us. Now, if you look out to the front left of the coach, there's a temple up on the hill. Um, very worthwhile visit. visit with little, there is actually a map up in the hotel of all the different things to do. There are tours available which will pick you up and drop you back at the hotel to most places around Kathmandu, although For those of you feeling a little energetic, then bicycles are again the the way to get around. As we go into Kathmandu, I just do a very brief circuit, so you'll know roughly where the um, various things are. And then we'll go on to the hotel. There's a snack bar, etc. open at the hotel uh, for lunch, so that shouldn't be a problem. We'll put up a list of recommended restaurants. There are lots of little eating places around Kathmandu. Um, some of them are okay, some are not quite so good. So if you stick to the recommended ones, you shouldn't have too many problems. These trolley bus lines, they go out to uh, Nagarkot or towards an agriculture you can take them out and then if you've got a couple of days walk up into the foothills, stay up in the lodge overnight and then walk back and pick up the trolley bus again to come back to Kathmandu. Little uh, bakeries and drink shops and all that around here it is cheaper than buying in the hotel obviously um, and not too much of a problem. The Thai Embassy for those who require Thai visas Just up the little lane there on the left. And here we have the blue
0: star. It was the climax of 35 days continuous travel and I think everyone was pretty relieved. There was a big party that night but I found it hard to fully relax. The most difficult and dangerous part of my world tour lay ahead on a motorbike across the deserts and plains of Australia. My few days in Kathmandu were busy ones as I scurried around making arrangements to fly the 4,000 odd miles to Perth, Western Australia. But I did see some beautiful scenery from the foothills of the Himalayas. Whilst trekking, a group of us heard some of the most unusual folk songs of any country in the world. Finally, on the night of the 13th of September, I flew out of Kathmandu, Nepal, destination Bangkok, Thailand. From there it was on to Singapore, then Jakarta, the Indonesian capital, and finally Perth on Friday the 15th of September. Australia at last, and once again I was to travel by myself on two wheels.